I want to begin our message this morning by making a simple factual observation, which is that in the contemporary church of today, the bodily ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven has fallen into hard times. It's fallen onto hard times. A recent article published in a Christian magazine illustrates the point when it says that many Christian theologians in the 20th century have rejected the idea of a literal bodily ascension of Christ, considering it a crude myth which is impossible for people to accept in a modern world. A crude myth, that's all it is. The point is illustrated or confirmed by one of the top New Testament scholars of the 20th century, Bruce Metzger, commenting on the doctrine of the ascension, says, No other story in the New Testament creates for the modern reader a greater sense of conflict between what he knows of astrophysics and what he thinks the Bible's account necessarily implies. When you put the literal question to the ascension passages, the ascension story evaporates into thin air. Jesus becomes a kind of first century superman, and heaven becomes a place located in space beyond the clouds. There's doubtless no instance of the supernatural in the New Testament which makes greater demands on faith than the ascension. We've heard this before. We can't believe in miracles of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because we use toasters and microwave ovens. You see, this is the whole rationalistic, faithless, skeptical kind of hearing uh, that has led vast portions of the contemporary Protestant church to relegate the whole concept and the whole doctrine of the bodily ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven at the back burner as if it's really uh, an old liturgical holiday with very little significance for us as Christians. Well, what I want us to see from the Word of God this morning that the Reformed Church and the Biblical Church and the Bible-based church must thoroughly reject this kind of reasoning uh, because uh, the doctrine of the bodily ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven to take a seat at the right hand of God in heaven is not only a non-negotiable historical fact, it's also a doctrine of monumental significance uh, to the Christian faith. It's really, and we want to make this argument this morning, uh, the uh, doctrine of the bodily ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven is, is really the climactic uh, redemptive historical doctrine in the New Testament. We should make our argument about that. Let's, let's begin to look at Psalm 68 first and sort of get an overview uh, of this passage and then we'll come to Ephesians chapter 4 and see how the apostle expounds it and applies it to the New Testament church. Uh, Psalm 68, as you might have noticed as we were reading through it, is a very difficult psalm. Not easy to understand at all. Uh, Back in the middle of the 19th century, a German scholar lamented this, uh, complaining that at his time, there were over 400 interpretations of the psalm. And that's 150 years ago. Imagine how the interpretations have applied or built up since then. Uh, And so one commentator calls this the most formidable psalm in the Psalter. It's easy to understand why people find this a complicating uh, piece of biblical uh, uh, work. The psalm contains unique vocabulary, unfamiliar imagery, and it really is a very sort of choppy recounting 
of a series of historical incidents. But if we can just uh, acknowledge that, and on the other hand, uh, realize that there is some real consensus about what this passage is about, and then we also have, of course, uh, the very great help of the Apostle who interprets it and applies it to Jesus Christ, we can find uh, portions of clarity in this passage. And what I would argue is that, um, first of all, what's going on in this psalm is that you have a worship processional. You can see that in verses 24 and 25. We didn't read those passages, but it's clear there that what you have is a throng of worshipers who are headed up the earthly Zion to worship God at the temple. It says, they have seen your processional God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. And then it says, the singers went on, the musicians after them, in the midst of the maidens maidens beating tambourines. So what you have here is a worship processional, a group of worshipers who are walking up the temple mountain to go worship the Lord. And as they are walking up the mountain preparing themselves for worship, what they are doing is recounting uh, the great redemptive historical acts of God from Mount Sinai unto God filling uh, the earthly temple with his personal presence. That's what's going on here. That's that chunk of time of about four, maybe five hundred years recounting the significant acts of God. And you can see the beginning of that recounting happen in verse 1. Uh, where the worshipers say, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, and let those who hate him flee before him. What this is, is an allusion to Numbers chapter 10, verse 35, where uh, God told Moses that whenever uh, the priests are to set out, they're to blow the trumpet and to repeat a phrase. And then the phrase is very similar to this, that God's enemies will be scattered as he proceeds to march or lead the march of Israel. Uh, through the wilderness. And so it sets up this image, and we'll come back to this later, of God as a conquering warrior, as God leading his troops into battle. Now, let's work through the the rest of the passage, just briefly sort of touching over uh, what's going on here so we can kind of see where the climax emerges in this passage. Uh, Verse 4, we have a call to praise, which says, Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song who rides through the desert. That's, that's more military imagery. We can come back to that later when we touch on the, uh, the fact that Jesus is the divine warrior who conquers his enemies. But uh, we have a call to praise to God. And then, of course, you have the reasons for praise are listed in verses 5 through 6. He is a father to the fatherless, a judge for the widows. Uh, he makes a home for the lonely, and he leads the prisoners out into prosperity. Uh, Here you have reasons for praise, and what you have are outlined the various categories of those who are in distress, those who are weak, and those who are helpless, and those kinds of people who are in particular need of the sovereignty of God's uh, grace and compassion. And so the psalmist uh, here is leading the people of God to reflect upon that aspect of God, which is outstanding, that compassionate and gracious character of God who is ready to lend a hand and to show mercy and grace and compassion to those who are in distress. And so the the song continues to unfold, verses 7 through 10. Uh, You have allusions here to God's uh, theophany at the top of Mount Sinai when he comes down to meet Israel. He calls them in Exodus 19 and 20 uh, to stand before him. Where the mountain quaked, we are told, and thunder and lightning. 
was manifest at the top of the mountain as God then spoke his law to Israel. So you have Sinai there, and that's, that's probably the main historical event that we want to think about in connection with how the rest of the pieces of the psalm are put together. And because we move forward from verses 7 through 10 of that theophany uh, to the conquest of the land in verses 11 through 14. And uh, again, the illusions, I I would agree, are somewhat obscure and somewhat difficult. Uh, But you can see that it's about conquest, and it's kind of touching uh, very lightly on some of the narratives that you have in in Joshua, and a little bit in Judges here about God uh, defeating the kings of the land. You see that in verse 14, the Almighty scattered uh, the kings there. And, And now you come to... Uh, What's the climax? And this is what the psalm is about. And it's about God coming to take up residence in the temple on Mount Zion. It's about God coming to take up residence in Jerusalem and to dwell there uh, personally and so fulfill the terms of the covenant. And when you think about that, that being the climax, you start to ask, well, what is the historical backdrop? And the historical drap, uh, backdrop is related for us in First uh, Chronicles 15. Uh, David has subdued all of his enemies. Uh, David has consolidated his throne now in Jerusalem. And uh, David brings up the Ark of the Covenant there now. So that um, his throne and God's personal dwelling are one. And so uh, you have a a tremendous description of this process of uh, the Ark of the Covenant being brought up into Jerusalem. We're told that there was shouting and there was singing and there was trumpets blaring and harps playing. And, of course, David uh, was leaping and dancing before the Lord. And, And the whole reason why you have this spectacular ceremony is because... Uh, what you have here is the recording of the historical fulfillment of the promise which is at the heart of the covenant. Uh, Back in Deuteronomy chapter 12, God promised Israel. Not only would He be their God and they would be His people, but really the essence and the heart of the covenant that God makes with Israel and that He makes with us as His people is that not only would we be His and be a part of His family, but that He would be with us. He would dwell with us personally. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 12, God promised to Israel through Moses, He says, when you go across the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you inherit, and He gives you rest from all of your enemies around you so that you live in security, then it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God will choose for His name to dwell, there you shall bring all that I command you. You see, God is saying that as soon as I give you the strength to suppress all of the enemies around you, at that point, that is when I am going to climactically bring my personal presence to dwell among you. It's going to be at Jerusalem. And there you will begin to bring uh, your worship to me. And that's exactly what's happened. It's happened several hundred years after he promised that it would happen, but it's finally happened. And so uh, the worshippers are exulting in God as they see Him bring to climactic fulfillment the promises of the covenant, uh, that God comes to dwell personally among His people on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And you see that 
in verse 18. You have ascended on high. You have led captive. You love captive your captives. You receive gifts from men, even among the rebellious. Also, the Lord God has dwelt there. So, it the, really the climax of the peak of the psalm is in verse 18, with God ascending uh, to the temple mount to dwell there personally. Now, we already read it, but you can flip back over to it in Ephesians. You can see uh, here that that Paul lifts it up to its uh, fullest extent and meaning. When he quotes uh, that particular verse, Psalm 68:18, and applies it to Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 8 of Ephesians 4, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And there's your fulfillment. And, and let's make it clear here that what Paul is saying is that Jesus is really the ultimate fulfillment. That Psalm 68, and and really the climactic promise of that covenant that God has been promising uh, from from of old. That the heart of it is that God would come to dwell with us bodily, and He would dwell with us personally. And of course, He's done that in Jesus, and Paul makes that application. And so this morning, as we think about this in connection uh, with the bodily ascension of Christ into heaven, we need to draw out some applications for the church. And I want to make four of them here this morning as we think about this doctrine of the bodily ascension of Christ into heaven. And I've said this repeatedly, but the bodily ascension of Christ into heaven marks the climactic redemptive historical event. It's the climactic one. You say, wow, that seems a little bit surprising that it's climactic because we think of the cross, I guess, and, and we think of the resurrection. But you you can see why it is the climactic event if you just look back to verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 4. It says, To each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then you have the reason or the explanation of that in verse 8 where Paul applies Psalm 68, 18 to Jesus and then goes on to explain that that's all fulfilled in the ascension of Christ to heaven. Verse 9 says, Now this expression, He ascended, what does it mean except that He also had descended in the lower parts of the earth, and He who descended is Himself also He who ascended far above all the heavens, so that He might fill all things. But I want us to see here the climactic nature of it. The Apostle Paul is explaining how it could be that grace is given to every single elect person. He explains how it can be that grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is now being applied to his people and to his church. And Paul's explanation is this. It's all based upon the heavenly bodily ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the indispensable link between the objective uh, redemptive historical events of the cross and the resurrection and the application of that redemptive work of Christ to us. You see, if Christ doesn't ascend bodily into heaven, there's no way for that objective work to be made ours. That's what Paul is arguing here. It's the way in which grace is given to each one of us. You just sit and think about this for a moment. It becomes uh, even more clear as we think about the climactic nature 
of uh, the bodily ascension of Christ into heaven. If Christ did not ascend into heaven, there's no priestly intercession of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary for sinners, which is absolutely essential, as John even explains this. In 1 John chapter 2, he says, My little children, if anyone sins, we have an advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he is the propitiation for all of our sins. John makes it very clear that the only way that there is covering for our sin in the sight of God is if Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, serving as our advocate. If Christ didn't ascend into heaven, there's no kingly rule of Christ over his church. And if there's no kingly rule of Christ over his church, there's no power to subdue the hearts of sinful people to bring them to Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ doesn't ascend bodily into heaven, take his seat at the right hand of God in heaven, there's no outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we see in Pentecost, which we celebrate next Sunday. There's all kinds of implications here. But you see, the redemptive work of Jesus couldn't be applied unto salvation apart from this. And so it marks, really, uh, the climax of the whole series of redemptive historical events. But as soon as we say that this bodily ascension of Christ into heaven is really marking out the climactic redemptive historical event, we have to be very careful to say, and quickly say, that the bodily ascension of Christ into heaven does not mean the personal absence of Christ with His church. The bodily ascension of Christ into heaven does not mean the personal absence of Christ from His church. The Catechism, uh, in speaking about this, expounds this so well. It says, according to His Godhead, majesty, and grace, and spirit, He is at no time absent from us. Even though he has ascended bodily into heaven, he is at no time absent from us. Now, we could argue that the bodily ascension of Christ does not mean the personal absence of Christ from Psalm 68 itself. Because remember, uh, the climax of Psalm 68 is verse 18, with the Lord uh, ascending the Temple Mount to dwell personally with his people. The the, the entire reason why uh, the people in Psalm 68 are rejoicing, the processional of worshipers are rejoicing, is because God is personally present with His church. And of course, um, that being applied to Jesus would have to mean that uh, Jesus is still personally with His church. Uh, But there's one passage that really draws this out uh, very clearly, perhaps maybe the clearest In the whole New Testament, it's Acts chapter 9, verses 4 through 5. And you'll remember this passage because uh, it's one that we've covered a number of times. It's also a famous passage because there uh, the uh, crucified and risen and ascended Lord comes to meet the Apostle Paul. uh, As Paul is uh, breathing out murderous threats against the church. That's what we're told at the beginning of the chapter Chapter 9, verse 1 says, Paul was breathing out murderous threats against the church. He was savagely persecuting the church. And so Jesus comes to meet him on uh, the road to Damascus. And the Word of God tells us that uh, Paul fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus Christ, whom you are persecuting. Now, you could hardly make a more direct connection between Christ 
and His personal presence in the church than what Jesus Himself does here in Acts chapter 9. Jesus says, for Paul to persecute Christ, uh, the church is for Paul to persecute Christ. And the only way that Paul could, or rather Jesus could make that argument is if Jesus is personally present with His people. The only way for uh, Jesus to be, or rather Paul to be persecuting Jesus by persecuting the church is if Jesus is personally present with His church. And so we make the point that uh, the bodily ascension of Christ does not mean the personal absence. And we just begin to think about that and apply it to ourselves this morning. Christ is personally present with His people. He's personally present with us in worship. Uh, When we gather to worship on Sunday mornings in a building like this, you say, well, it really seems uh, hard for my faith to concentrate on the Lord because it's sort of an awkward surrounding. But the point of the matter is, true worship happens wherever Jesus is. Wherever Jesus comes to meet His church, there you have worship. And you could have it in the middle of a cafeteria, uh, you could have it in the middle of an ornate cathedral, or you could have it in the middle of an open field somewhere. It's not the surroundings that make the worship significant. What makes the worship significant is the person who comes to meet you. And the person who comes to meet you is Jesus Christ Himself. He is personally present with His church, and so He is in the midst of us when we worship. And He's the one who speaks to us in the preaching of the Word. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10, that Christ speaks through the proclamation of the Gospel. He is the one who greets us in the morning worship. He is the one who sends us off with His blessing through the benediction. Christ is always interacting with us when we come together for worship. Uh, but, but the joy of what we find in Acts chapter 9 verses 4 and 5 where Jesus accuses Paul of persecuting him because Paul is persecuting his church is not just that Jesus is with his church when we gather together for worship on Sunday mornings. Uh, The joy of this particular passage and how it explains the personal presence with Christ at all times with His church is that uh, Jesus is accusing Paul of persecuting the church outside of its worship. And the only way that Paul could be persecuting the church outside of its worship and therefore persecuting Jesus is if Jesus goes with His worshipers, if He goes with His people when they dismiss from church. See, that, that is what we're talking about. That is the implication of the bodily ascension of Christ into heaven. It means His personal presence with the church, not just when we're gathered together on Sunday mornings, but all throughout the week. Wherever we go, whatever situations we're in, Jesus is with His church. He's with you when you depart from church this morning. He's with us in all of our trials, that means. He's with us in all of our temptations. He's even there when we're sinning. The, the, the personal presence of Christ is with us at all times. And it's a marvelous thought if, if you just step back and think about the wonder of this. This is, again, why the worshipers are, are recounting the great acts of God and particularly marking the... Uh, the uh, the historical and climactic fulfillment of what's going on as the, the ark ascends to the Temple Mount. Is that it marks the fulfillment of the covenant and it marks the personal 
dwelling of the Lord with his church. And it's said in a very interesting way in uh, Psalm 68, verses 15 and 16. Uh, The psalmist says, A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. It says, Why do you look with envy, O mountains, with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. Now, it's just part of the difficult nature and language and imagery of the psalm, but it's fascinating what's going on here. Trying to draw out the real joy and the blessing and the marvel and the wonder of the personal uh, dwelling of God with his church. But it's said here in a poetic way, and basically what it's saying is that the mountains of Bashan are jealous of Mount Zion. And you say, what in the world could that mean? <laughs> it's dif- it is difficult, I'll grant you that. But the mountain ranges of Bashan are to the north and east of Jerusalem. And it's somewhat of a large mountain range for that area, I guess. But the main peak in that mountain range is Mount Hermon, and it towers up to 9,000 feet elevation. You can see it from a very long ways away. It's this huge, beautiful mountain with rugged peaks and and covered with uh, lush green vegetation and thick forests. I mean, it's a mountain. Uh, In California, we're spoiled. But in the Midwest, people think uh, mountains are these little tiny rolling molehills that they have all over. Then you come to California and you drive to the Sierras. And, and you, see, you can see these, mo- these mountains for hundreds of miles away. These huge towering peaks. And the beauty that's there. That's similar to what's going on here. Because you can see this Mount Hermon from miles and miles away. It towers over all of, of the other little hills. And then you have... Uh, Mount Zion, which is just a, a dusty, dry, arid molehill. It's nothing. It, it's really pitiful. And, and yet, poetically put, it says the mountains of Bashan are jealous of Mount Zion. They're jealous of it. And in order to understand this a bit better, you need to understand something of ancient Near Eastern religious thought. Uh, in ancient religions, they believed that the gods dwelt, literally dwelt, on the tops of the mountains. And so, the higher the mountain was, and the more majestic the mountain peak, the more likely it was a suitable dwelling place for a particular god. And so, uh, humanly speaking, religiously speaking, what you would expect is if the Lord is going to dwell in the midst of His people, and the Lord is the maker of heaven and earth, and the Lord is this exalted and mighty and transcendent and holy God, what you would have expected from an ancient Near Eastern way of looking at this religiously, is that the Lord would have taken over Mount Hermon as His dwelling place, with its 9,000 feet high majestic peaks covered with lush green vegetation. And the point of the passage is this, what makes Zion glorious is not that it's some towering or massive or beautiful place, Because it's really nothing. It's an insignificant molehill. But yet, it's been made glorious because God's there. And you stop and think about that and you say, 
Uh, isn't that just the way that God does things? Isn't that just the way God does things? Contrary to human reason and expectation. God chooses to dwell on this pitiful little hill and make it glorious. You see, it's not the hill that commends itself to the dwelling of the Lord. It's God who claims it for himself and makes it glorious. And I got to thinking about that. And of course, Mount Zion is an uh, Old Testament type of the church. That's what it is. It's just an Old Testament type pointing forward uh, to the New Testament church, to the reality uh, which would be made manifest as Jesus Christ comes. She said, are there any parallels to this kind of thinking in the New Testament? The answer is obviously yes. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says, there's not, very, there's not many wise according to the flesh. There's not many mighty. There's not many noble. And then in verse 27, he goes on to explain what the church looks like to God and to also explain what the church looks like in the eyes of the world. And he says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despise, God has chosen the things that are not. You see what God has chosen for a dwelling place uh, here, which is the reality, which is the fulfillment. It's very similar to Mount Zion. It's really a bunch of nothings. The place that God has chosen to mark out for his personal and glorious dwelling is not a group of people that commends itself to God because of its spectacular abilities or gifts. God's chosen to dwell with the foolish and the weak and the base, and the despised, and the nothing. You see, it's not the sophistication, or the wealth, or the elite status, or the educated, or the wise, or the powerful, or the beautiful, that makes the church a suitable dwelling place for the Lord. It's just the opposite. And this is the marvel of the gospel. It's that God chooses the foolish and the despised and the weak and the nothings to exalt them by His grace. And you know, it strikes me this morning as I think about that, that much of the North American church today has forgotten that. Uh, The who's who of, of contemporary Christianity would much rather be Mount Hermon than Mount Zion. Isn't that the case? If you've really arrived, and if you're really doing something as a church, and if if you're really making changes, and if you're really calling the world around you to to sit up and take notice of you, you need to be a lot more like Herman than you should be like Zion. And so we build these huge churches and superstructures that look like shopping malls with all of the trappings of external success. Which includes Starbucks coffee houses, personal weight rooms, state-of-the-art surround sound, huge high-definition TV screens, circus acts and pastors who play the heart, or rather the part of hip media personalities 
Because we think, we think that what commends us is the externals. But you see, this is a powerful rebuke to that. Christ is the one who's to be glorified. He's the one that has secured our redemption, and He is the one who has overcome the grave, and He is the one who has ascended to sit at the right hand of God. He is the glorious one, not His people. What He chooses are the weak and the despised and the foolish and the nothing to come down and to be with them. And by His grace to exalt them. It's not that we exalt ourselves and make us ourselves attractive to God so that He would uh, that He would like to be associated with us. The prophet Isaiah puts it like this. Isaiah 57.15 For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I will dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You see, the glory of the gospel is that this high and transcendent and exalted and holy God uh, comes to dwell with the lowly in order to revive them. That's the gospel way. It's marvelous. And that happens through uh, the bodily ascension of Christ and uh, his personal presence with his people. There's another application I want to make this morning here. and We've already seen it just a bit in Ephesians chapter uh, 4, verse 7. But Christ is also with his church to adorn it. Christ is with his church to adorn it. And that's precisely what Paul is getting at in verse 7 when he says to each one of us, grace was given. But you see, the key is, how is it that grace is given? How is it that grace is given? And what Paul does here in this passage is he unravels uh, and applies now how that grace comes, and it's through the bodily ascension of Christ into heaven. And as he bodily ascends into heaven, he begins to pour gifts out to men. And so you can see the beginning of that explanation of how uh, the ascension uh, is connected to the application of the grace of Christ to his people. And you see the beginning of the explanation in verse 11. It says, The one who ascended gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Now, I hate to do this. But I have to correct the New American Standard Version here. uh, Because uh, this is one of the few places in the New Testament where it completely distorts the translation and completely misses the point. Because it says that uh, Jesus has given pastors and teachers to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. But that's not what it says. What the passage really says is that Jesus gave pastors and teachers for the formation of the church to do the ministry of the church to build up the body of Christ. You see, what what Paul is saying now, and he's trying to explain how it is that to each one of us grace has been given, and Paul is explaining how this happens. He's giving us the gospel logic, the theological logic. 
And he connects it to the bodily ascension of Christ into heaven. He says, when he ascended into heaven, this is what Jesus did, is he poured out gifts to men, and now he focuses very narrowly and specifically upon the ministry of the Word. And he says, this is what the bodily ascension of Christ means to you, is that Christ ascended into heaven, and he gave pastors and teachers, and the pastors and teachers have three functions. To form the body of Christ to do the work of the ministry, and to build up the body of Christ. And now, verse 13, plug all of that thought in, and you see the glory of this. This is the effect of it, or the purpose of it. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Uh, you, You see what Paul is arguing here. That the ministry of the Word is the means by which Christ is sanctifying His church and make it partake of the fullness of grace which is in Him. It's by the ministry of the Word that Jesus Christ gives grace to each one. And that giving of grace to each one through the ministry of the church, Paul explicitly connects to this bodily ascension of Jesus Christ into the heavenly places so that he could make us partakers of the fullness of his grace. You see here, it's a huge mistake and it's devastating to the theology of the church if it relegates the doctrine of the bodily ascension of Christ to some insignificant, uh, difficult-to-explain mythological idea. It's absolutely foundational and essential to the church. And then the final thing that we draw out by way of application of this concept of the bodily ascension of Christ into heaven is that Jesus has ascended to heaven in order to promote and defend the church. He's ascended into heaven to promote and defend his church. And of course that flows from, as I said, all this military imagery in, in Psalm 68. You, you have in the very beginning verse of that psalm this invoking of God that he would arise and scatter his enemies. That sort of sets the theme for uh, how to interpret and to understand this whole succession of events from, from Sinai to God's uh, ascending the Temple Mount to take up personal residence there. That the only way that Israel is ever going to come to enjoy the outworking of that is if God takes up the sword and puts down all of Israel's enemies and establishes them them in the land that he may dwell among them. And so, uh, through the subsequent verses, you have a series of references uh, to this military imagery. Uh, Verse 4 talks about God riding on the clouds, which is, again, a Canaanite military description. You have the military uh, exploits and conquests of the land of Canaan spelled out in verses 12 through 14. So, uh, see, this idea of Christ ascending for the very purpose of promoting and defending his church flows from the very nature of the one who is described in Psalm 68. He's a warrior. He's a warrior king who ascends in order to promote and defend his church. And that means then that that's what Jesus is to his church today. He has ascended to be a warrior king 
who fights and defends and promotes his kingdom. And that strikes a very uh, familiar and common theme in the doctrine of Reformed ecclesiology, is that the institutional church is to be the militant church. The institutional church is to be the militant church. And that doesn't mean that uh, we take up swords and spears and guns and grenades and advance the kingdom of God. That's, that's not what Christians do. That's Islam. We don't, we, don't, we don't beat people up to make them part of Jesus. The militancy of the church is that we're militant in praying and seeking that Jesus Christ would pour out the grace and the power of His Holy Spirit upon hardened hearts to make them contrite and to make them humble and to make them new and to make them quickened and to make them His children through the power of the Gospel. For the church to be the militant church means that the church is to be a missionary church. It's to be passionate about the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to be passionate about the evangelism of the lost. It is to be passionate about praying for the lost. It is to be passionate about seeking the advancement of the kingdom of God in this world. That's what it is for the church to be militant. And because Jesus Christ and the nature of him who ascended is that he is a warrior king, it means then that the church is to be a militant church. And that means that you, as one who experiences the personal presence of Christ in your life, as you who are a member of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, where Christ personally dwells, it means that you are a part of this goal of Christ, which is... To conquer his enemies and to put them down and to bring them to the cross for redemption. And so that means this morning, people of God, the bodily ascension of Christ to you means that you're called to pray. It means that you are called in your personal life to pray regularly and persistently and perseveringly and specifically for the conquest of the gospel and for the building up of the kingdom of God. And it also means that you're called to work to that end. It means you're called to work to that end. You say, well, what does that mean that I'm to work to that end? Well, it means that you are to see yourself and your life circumstance is a mission field. Wherever you go, who your friends are, the places you hang out, is that... You are called to be a missionary on that mission field in order to win people to Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, it means that you all stand and oppose error and anything that contradicts the gospel and the true worship of the Lord Jesus. And that's what the bodily ascension of Jesus Christ is to us. He's, it's the climactic event. It means that he's personally present It means that he has ascended to adorn us with his grace, and it means that he has ascended to promote his kingdom. It's a huge doctrine. It's not something that's peripheral or non-essential or negotiable uh, or a holiday that uh, we can just sort of safely ignore and let pass as long as we celebrate Christmas and Easter. Uh, It's climactic. It's climactic, and that's because the ascension is about Christ displaying his majesty and coming to dwell with us personally. 
adorning his church with grace. Let's pray.